it with you about kingdom investing. If you've ever thought about being able to invest money, make money, and also support churches, the Solomon Foundation does it very well. So visit with him after the service is over, and he'll tell you all about that. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing... You will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray together. Gary? Our Father, we are in awe of your power and of your majesty, your mercy and your grace. We look at this world that you've created and understand that you simply spoke it into being. Father, we are thankful for you speaking your word through your son, Jesus Christ, and bringing life and recreating each of us in his image and in your image. Thank you for speaking your word and bringing into being this your congregation. Continue to bless this fellowship, this body of your son Jesus. Bless them, encourage them, empower them, guide them by your spirit and your word that an even greater impact can be made in this community and around the world through this body of believers. Protect their leader, Phil, and his family. Protect the eldership. Keep them sound in their faith and their walk with you. And Father, we pray for strength for every leader, every member here, that indeed the person of Jesus Christ, your Son, may be represented and shown to this community. And Father, may many more be brought to you to hear the power of your creative word and speak into being new lives saved by your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Gary. Go ahead and be seated. We've been in a study for the past several weeks from the book of 1 Timothy. We'll be moving into 2 Timothy after the Christmas season, more than likely, and Titus. These three books are referred to as the pastoral epistles. Timothy and Titus were 
very close friends of the Apostle Paul, young men. He would refer to them as his sons in the faith. He led them to the Lord and he entrusted them with churches that were very special to him. He wrote them these letters to help them in their ministry. That's really what these are. They are letters written to these two fellows to help them, to encourage them, to build them up. Because of that, I've been sharing some letters with you that come from all kinds of different sources. We've looked at letters from history. We've looked at some letters from other sources. and Some of them have been serious. Some of them not so much. Like last week, we were looking at letters from Dear Abby, not necessarily serious. Well, this week, I want to share with you one written by a fellow named Christopher Kimball. It is contained in a book called Dear Charlie. That book is really nothing but a, a accumulation of 52 letters that he has written to all four of his children. He titled it Dear Charlie because that's one of the favorite letters that he wrote. Charlie is one of his sons. But every other chapter is a letter written to either one of the kids specifically or to all of them together. This letter happens to be one that was written to all four of the kids. and I'll share it with you in just a second. I was inspired reading this book a number of years ago and found myself reminded of the fact that I had set out to do the exact same thing for our kids when they were born. In fact, I, I started with each one of them, with all three. The night they were born, when Tina was asleep in the hospital room and I was sitting next to her, I wrote each one of our kids a letter. Our intention was to give it to them when they were 18 years old. I was going to write to them every year on their birthday and at different times throughout the course of the year, and I did write to them sporadically through the years, just letters, thoughts that were going through my mind. And We were going to put them all together and give them all to them on their 18th birthdays, and we never did pull that off. And here in the, the last few weeks, we've been going through some things, and we've come across those letters and look forward to giving to them, giving them to them. But also found myself reminded of something that is inspiring me right now. And that comes from a friend of mine who set his sights on writing the entire Word of God in his handwriting for each one of his children. From Genesis to Revelation, he was going to write it out word for word because he wanted them to know how important the Bible was to him and is to him. And he also wanted them to see it as that important for themselves. The problem he discovered was it was going to take more years than he would have on this earth to finish that task, writing three chapters a day in his own handwriting. So what he did was go out and find two journals, Bible-sized journals, that he wrote his thoughts on every book of the Bible in for both his son and his daughter. The thoughts are different. For his son, they had certain thoughts. For his daughter, he had other thoughts. And so he did that twice out of every book of the Bible for his kids. Pretty cool. Parents, if you have young kids living at home and you want to capture different thoughts, write them letters, give them to them, maybe on the spot, or you hold them for when they're a little older and will maybe be able to understand them better and value what you have to say. Grandparents, you can do the same thing. If you have young grandkids, start a series of letters for them that will allow you to teach them long after you're gone even. Write them letters. It works. That's what's recorded in the Bible, especially in these three books. Those are letters written to young men that would help them not only in the present, but in the days to come. This is from Christopher Kimball. It is titled The Book of Wonder. Remember, it's a letter. One of my favorite books as a child was The Book of Wonders, an encyclopedia of marvelous discoveries from the monuments of Pharaohs to the mysteries of the duckbill platypus 
and the long-nosed bat. Centuries ago, many families displayed a wonder cabinet in their homes, filled with found treasures from ancient coins, rare seashells, and butterflies to the simple four-leafed clover. In those days, the world was full of mysteries, places undiscovered, rumors of giant tusked mammals and rarely glimpsed tribes, sea monsters, and the ends of the earth where the ocean might cascade into the void. The woods held secrets to be unlocked through careful study and observation. Every leaf and insect having not been cataloged and yet put on display at the Smithsonian. Albert Einstein knew well that both science and life itself was worth living in a rare envelope of mystery. For without it, the imagination and life itself withers and dies. For your mother and I, this farmhouse is full of wonder each day, replete with surprise and enlightenment. We wonder most about what immortal ether each of you came from, how the spark of life came to grace your small beings, mere mortal seed being lowly stuff compared to a holier spirit that lights your eyes and guides your way. Parents are no captains of their ship, merely the vessel itself, sturdy, predictable, and seaworthy, but steered by other hands. It is a blessing to have the four of you as passengers on this journey, the two of us grateful and in awe at each passing mile. We wonder at the mirror you hold up to us, reflecting bits of ourselves, the jigsaw puzzle of voice and eyes and attitude that have been randomly scattered among our offspring and then remolded into whole beings with second-hand parts cobbled together from the family tree. A glance here, an expression there, combined to remind us that we have both ties to the past and the future. No one person is able to live alone, unconnected to other generations. You are living proof that the thread of life is strong, binding us in a family web that eventually connects us all. We marvel at the wonder you find in the coyotes who flow down from the ridges after midnight, their plaintive yapping filling your dreams, their dark shadows spilling over until daylight. You explore our brook and find the Amazon. A barn becomes a living museum built from the refuse of old farmers. Mummified swallows, horse-powered oat thresher, a pocket full of square-headed nails and enough baling twine to stretch 50 times between bedposts, transforming a bed into a fortress. A bright orange salamander is an ambassador from another world, a reptilian kingdom that lies just below the surface of the forest. A bedtime story becomes a saga, one that makes no distinction between fact and fiction, the characters becoming part of the family legend as real as the mailman or your Uncle Bud. Let me stop there for just a second. One of our favorite things when the kids were small and even as they got bigger and in recent years have left the house was the telling of bedtime stories. Ours always followed the exact same thing. If you know us well, this won't surprise you. Every bedtime story, and the kids would ask me on a regular basis, Dad, tell us a story, tell us a story, tell us a story. And they were always wanting the same one. Every story involved all three of our kids, Nick, Eli, and Katie. They were all in some sort of horrible situation, and they needed to be rescued. And they were all rescued by Black Dog. We told Black Dog stories. Well, Nick, our oldest son, just told us this last week that he was telling his girlfriend about black dog stories, and he ended up telling her one, making one up himself. And, and that's great to think about the fact that Nick is becoming a storyteller all unto himself. It's a cool thing. Tell bedtime stories to your kids. Make them up and have a lot of fun with them. Now, back to this. You live in an age of wonder, a world where the breath of the unseen is felt upon your neck where the morning is fresh and full of possibilities, where at any moment something unspeakable might come crashing out of the woods. 
Each of you knows well that the universe is expanding toward infinity, that revelations may appear at sunset, the face of God suddenly forming in the whirls and the wisp of glowing cumulus. The world has yet to be broken into its components, inspected, analyzed, and then put away for reference. Each small component is still linked in some cosmic chain, the worm on the hook to the great black bears of your dreams, the orange and crimson of a sugar maple leaf to the east wind that brings a change of weather. And as you mature, the wonder slips away slowly, poured, I hope, from your reservoir into ours, so not even one drop is spilled along the way. Wonder is a precious commodity, the frankincense of our time, and each generation is merely a trustee, a conservator of this rare stuff, the manna without which no life is worth living. And when you are older, a bit weary from the constant drumming of reality, your mother and I will open the sealed jar and pour forth this rich oil. We'll bathe your soul, rubbing the rich ungent into your temples and eyelids so that you may regain the eyes of a child and see the shadows in the mist, sense the great rivers of wind that flow above the continents and find the face of God wherever you look for it. Isn't that great? really is. That's great writing, and all of his letters are just like that. I want to make sure that I'm clear about something, by the way. When our son was telling his girlfriend a black dog story, it was over the phone. They are separated by about two hours, so I want to make sure that's clear. Now, <clears throat> moving on. Christopher Kimball wrote these things to his kids because he wanted them to hold on very specifically to the wonder that they had discovered in life. It is a close reflection of what Paul wanted Timothy to hold on to. He wanted to make sure that Timothy held on to what he refers to as the mystery of godliness. And in order to set the stage for that, Paul does something very unique in the middle of this letter that he wrote to him. He took him all the way back to the basics. When he was talking about the mystery of godliness, he rolled back the hands of time so that Timothy would look again at who Jesus Christ is. It's interesting that Bob Russell, great preacher in our brotherhood, who has been here and shared with our church, would say this over and over and over again to the leaders of his church. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing which means in church growth and as we're doing different things, we have to remember that the main thing is always Jesus Christ. No matter what we're doing, it is always Jesus Christ. And that statement, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, is something that our elders keep in front of them on a regular basis. As we're looking at the direction of the church, they're always asking, where is Jesus at in the midst of it? And are we keeping the main thing the main thing? If we're not, we need to not do it. It is all about Christ. Now, when Paul was teaching that to Timothy, he used six different things about Jesus to remind him of the mysterious nature of who Jesus is. Maybe you caught those as we were reading through chapter 3. Take a look at these again. We'll build the list for you. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Those six things Paul was telling Timothy he needed to make sure that he held on to in his life and in his preaching. And as a result of that, the mystery that is godliness, the mystery of a person that is so entrenched in the things of God will just exude from you. They'll come out of not only your preaching, but your life because you are focused on these things. They're all mysterious in nature, 
But Timothy, you make sure that you're communicating this. And if you do, this is me adding to what Paul said, you will never run out of material as a preacher. Not ever. You can preach Jesus from now until the end of time and never run out of material. That's how deep Jesus Christ goes. I've been preaching in Libby, Montana for 14 years. Some of you think it feels more like 40. But what I can tell you is this. After 14 years, we have only scratched the surface of who Jesus Christ is. There is a lot more for us to explore. There is a lot more for us to learn about the mystery of godliness beginning with who Jesus is. Let's take these six things. We'll just pick them apart real quick. When Paul tells Timothy to remember that Jesus is manifested in the flesh, he is reminding him that Jesus was there before time began. Jesus was with God in heaven, part of the Trinity, before he ever came to this earth. When he was manifested in the flesh, God the Son chose to take on human form that he might come here, are you ready for this, to save you and to save me and to save all of mankind. That's why God took on flesh. But it is incredibly important for us to recognize the fact that He was in heaven before He was here and took on fleshly form. It drives home the very point that Jesus was making in John 17. Why don't you turn there with me? John 17, chapter 5. This is a prayer that Jesus was offering first for Himself, then for the disciples, and then for all believers, including you. In the midst of this prayer in verse 5, chapter 17, Jesus would say this, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. Jesus was there before creation. He took on flesh for a specific purpose, and that purpose was salvation. And we find other places, especially in the book of John, that drive that point home. In chapter 1, verse 1, we read these words, in the beginning was the Word. Now you'll notice that the Word is capitalized. The Word was Jesus, so we can read it this way. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. All the way from the beginning of time, and well before it, Jesus was there. He took on flesh for the purpose of salvation. And while He was here for those 33 years, Paul's teaching Timothy that he was vindicated by the Spirit. Now, this is going to require a little bit of interpretation teaching for us, so hang with me through this. There are two different ways to see this. You see it up here right now as vindicated by the Spirit with the word Spirit capitalized. When the word Spirit is capitalized like this, it is speaking of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The word vindicated means to be declared righteous. So Paul is saying that Jesus was declared righteous by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit giving testimony over and over and over again about the righteousness, the sinlessness of Jesus. But there is another way to interpret this verse. That is by using the word spirit with a small s or a non-capitalized s. It completely changes the meaning. In this case, he was vindicated, declared righteous by his spiritual nature, by what was within him. We know through the study of the New Testament that Jesus was sinless. So when we say that he was declared righteous by his nature, his spirit nature, we're saying that over and over and over again, his actions and his life gave testimony to who he was. It does not really matter 
how you interpret this verse, you're going to end up at the same place every time Jesus Christ was sinless. But if you want to explore it at a deeper level and hold on to the mystery, you can look at it from both sides. I tend to be one that falls into the camp of number two, that Jesus was declared righteous by his sinlessness, by his spiritual nature. I don't argue or disagree with those that say he was declared righteous by the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. Like I said, it doesn't really matter and it is certainly nothing to divide us, but it shows you the mysterious nature of who Jesus Christ was. Either the Holy Spirit is constantly giving testimony to who Christ is or the very fact that he lived a sinless life is giving testimony to who Jesus was. All of that is necessary for us to understand him as Savior. Now take a look at number three. He was beheld by angels. If you have ever come to church around Christmas time, you know that the birth of Jesus Christ was announced by the angels. If you have come to church around Easter, you know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was announced by angels. If you've been here between those two landmarks, you know that repeatedly in the New Testament, we find angels ministering to Jesus, none more so evident than when he was in the wilderness. He was beheld by angels, ministered to by them, held up by them. At the crucifixion, the angels were ready to lift him off the cross. They were held back by the hand of God. They would speak again at the resurrection. Jesus was beheld by angels. Part of their ministry was to lift him up, whether that was physically or whether that is helping us get to the right place at the right time as ministering spirits still sent out by God. The angels beheld Christ. Number four, he was proclaimed among the nations. One of the things that Jesus said would happen with the Gospels is that the entire world would hear his message. Go with me to the book of Acts. We're already in the Gospel of John. Just turn over one book to Acts chapter 1. If you have a red letter edition of the Bible, these words will be in red. That means they're Jesus' words. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Listen to what he says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The gospel was going to leave Jerusalem and spread to every corner of the earth. That was one of the prophecies that Jesus made about himself and about the gospel. The gospel was not just going to be contained in Israel. It wasn't just going to be held in Judea or Samaria. It was going to go everywhere. And people were, according to number five from the Apostle Paul, going to believe it. Look at this. He would believe, be believed on in the world. People would have their lives changed. For the better part of 2,000 years now, that prophecy has been fulfilled. The gospel has gone to the far reaches of the earth and people have believed on Christ and been changed by Him. When I was in Bible college in 1987, Pioneer Bible Translators came to Manhattan, Kansas and they told us that there were 16,000 people groups across the globe that had not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ or ever seen the Bible in their native languages. 16,000 living in the bush of Africa, living out in the, the wilds of Australia, even in the United States, places that had never heard the gospel. Well, from 1987 to 2015, make sure I get my dates right, that number went from 16,000 down to 2,000. In um, September of last year, Pioneer Bible Translators were here for our school of missions, and they told us that now they are targeting the last 
2,000 remaining people groups to get the word of God to them in their own language and to get the gospel there. He is being proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world and people's lives are being changed. Isn't that a great mystery? How does that happen? 2,000 years later, people are saying, tell us about this Jesus. 2,000 years later, people want to know about the Savior of the world. 2,000 years later, people want to know about this little boy that grew up as a, a carpenter's son and ended up giving his life for all mankind. How does that happen? It happens by the power of God. That's how it happens. And Jesus himself declared that it would take place. And Paul said, Timothy, don't ever forget it. He will be proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world. That's the mystery of Jesus Christ. Nobody else is like him. Nobody else is like him. And number six, he'll be taken up in glory. Now that's incredibly important for us to understand in the mysterious nature of who Jesus is because by being taken up in glory, it sets the table for him to come back in glory. We're still in Acts chapter one. Listen to this starting in verse nine. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, beheld by angels, and he said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Not only was he taken up into glory, but he's coming back. That's who Jesus Christ is. He's coming back. This morning with the guys that I pray with, several of them were praying that very prayer. We call it the Maranatha prayer. Come, Lord Jesus, come. They were praying for a quick return of Christ. How many of you would agree with that prayer? Just give God a round of applause. Come, Lord Jesus, come and come quickly. Well, Paul says all of that is part of the mystery of godliness. Now, when he uses that word godliness, he kind of shifts everything over for us to look not only at who Jesus is, but now to take a look at who we are. Because godliness is an attribute that becomes a part of the believers of Christ. Godliness is something that we can embrace and make a part of who we are. It happens when we love him so deeply that we begin to reflect him. Part of the reason that I chose Christopher Kimball's letter to share with you was an excerpt that he put in there about reflection. Take a look at it again. We wonder at the mirror you hold up to us, reflecting bits of ourselves, a jigsaw puzzle of voice and eyes and attitude that have been randomly scattered among our offspring and then remodeled into a whole new or into whole new beings with second-hand parts cobbled together from the family tree. Every parent here can understand what Kimball was trying to say. When you look at your children, you see a reflection of you. When you look at your children, you see attributes that are a part of your life. Hopefully, when you look at them, you see the good attributes. Sometimes when we look at our kids, we realize that they've picked up some things that maybe we didn't want them to pick up. They are a mirror image of us. And that's what Kimball was saying. There's a wonder to that as you look at your children and the way God has made all of that happen through the, the gift of reproduction and multiplication and so on. It's an absolutely incredible part of who God is that he allows us to see that type of thing take place. Well, there's great teaching in that, mysterious teaching in that, when we realize that in godliness, we become a reflection of who he is. We become a reflection of Him. That's a little more difficult for people to understand. 
But if we can embrace the fact that we are sons and daughters of God, children of God, then this is no longer mysterious. We are reflecting our heavenly Father. Now, if you don't believe me, look at the Bible. Let's go to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself as He is pure. You're a child of God. If you are an immersed believer in Jesus Christ, you are a child of God, a son of God, a daughter of God, and you reflect God. You become a mirror image of Him. One of the things that we have taught our children from the time they were very small, and it's a biblical lesson, is that they are a reflection of us. We have used genealogies like the one recorded in Matthew chapter 1 where it talks about uh, the son of. Over and over and over again, it will say somebody is the son of, somebody else is a means of describing them. The original language uses the word bar for son of. So the way that would work in my situation is this. My father's name is Dalton. I would be known during the biblical times as Phil Bar Dalton, Phil the son of Dalton. That's who I am. Last names didn't really matter. That was my identification. I am Phil Bar Dalton. Well, my sons would be Nick Bar Phil, Eli Bar Phil. Because of that, I told them repeatedly over and over and over again, you are a reflection of me. Everything that you do is a reflection of me. Don't ever take that lightly as I've never taken it lightly to be a reflection of my father. I don't want you to take it lightly to be a reflection of me. But then we carried it out into the biblical application of that because they are also immersed believers in Jesus Christ. They are sons of God. It's Nick, son of God, son of Jesus. That's Eli, son of God, son of Jesus. They are mirror images of him. I am Phil, son of God, because of Jesus. So are you. Plug your name into that equation. You are the son or the daughter of God and a direct reflection of Him. It's interesting that Christopher Kimball would actually use three different dimensions to talk about that mirror image. Let's go back up here to this quote again. Take a look at this. We wonder at the mirror you hold up to us, reflecting bits of ourselves, a jigsaw puzzle of voice and eyes and attitude that have been randomly scattered among our offspring. Voice, eyes, and attitude. And one of the things I'm going to ask you to do today is to ask yourself an introspective question. If you are a mirror image of God in these three dimensions, how are you doing in voice, eyes, and attitude? How are you reflecting Him? Are you reflecting God in a positive way in voice, eyes, and attitude? Or are you reflecting God in a negative way? How are you doing? Now, let's take each one of them and we'll take a look at it. Let's take this idea of voice. Are the things of God on your lips all the time? Do you speak the things of God? Do you speak, as the Bible says, and you'll see in just a minute, grace to other people? Or do you speak condemnation and judgment? Are you speaking in such a way that you are directing people to the things of the Lord? Or are you directing people away from the things of the Lord? What does your terminology, language, vocabulary, what does it sound like? Are you a direct reflection of God in your voice, in your speech, on a day-to-day basis. I don't just mean on Sundays, I mean on a day-to-day basis. When you're out just doing life, 
Are you reflecting God with your voice? If you need a little clarification on that, let's go to the book of Ephesians, and I'll show you what Paul says about this to that church, which, by the way, is the same church Timothy was at. This is chapter 4, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as, as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, I love the fact that Paul would say, as it fits the occasion. That doesn't mean that you have to walk in someplace and grab hold of a Bible and a pulpit and commence to preach, and that's not what it means at all. As it fits the occasion, are you building people up? Are you encouraging people? Are you allowing the words of God to flow from your mouth and the things of God to flow from your mouth? If you're going to be a mirror image reflecting godliness, it requires that requires us to consciously think about what we're saying. But then, Kimball would actually say we need to add not just the voice or add to the voice, the whole idea of your eyes. What do your eyes say? Now, there's a couple ways that we could look at this. The easiest way is to say, how do you see other people? And we will say that. But there is deeper teaching in this. Psychologists in recent years, this is an incredibly interesting study, psychologists in recent years have discovered that your eyes will be exactly the same when you talk about your earthly father and your heavenly father. They've done some really extensive studies on this and come up with some crazy interesting data. What they mean by that is this, if you had a loving accepting father that is how you will see God, and your eyes will reflect it. When people look into your eyes, they will see the exact same emotion contained there when you talk about your earthly father or your heavenly father. If you had a mean, abusive father growing up, you will reflect through your eyes the exact same thing about God. He was mean and abusive. Now that is true, they say, unless a person has gotten to a place where they understand the loving nature of our Heavenly Father. And that can actually turn that around in that second scenario. But we know the Bible says that the eyes are the window to the soul, and when a person looks into your eyes and you're talking about the things of God, they can determine a lot about your relationship with Him simply by looking at your eyes. They're able to see your soul. But then as they watch how you treat other people and how you see other people, it is a giant exclamation point to what they saw looking into your eyes. If you see people in a condemning, judgmental way and you're going to act on it, then people are going to see that. If you see people in a loving and accepting way, the way Jesus Christ does, and you act accordingly, then other people are going to see that. Kimball is saying that your voice matters, but so do your eyes. And the Bible would say the same thing. Let's go to the book of 1 Samuel, all the way in the Old Testament. 1 Samuel chapter 16, but the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So if your eyes are a reflection of godliness, when you look at other people, do you see the outward appearance? Do you see the heart? Do you look beneath the surface, or do you only see what's happening that's visible? In godliness, we see beneath the surface. We can begin to ask the penetrating questions that help us understand what's happening in a person's life that causes them to act in certain ways. Godliness looks deeply into a person's heart. It's not just your voice, it's also your eyes. This third thing that Kimball would call out, this one can be awfully difficult. It's our attitude, how we approach life. 
that can be one of the most difficult things for us to transform. Our attitude can be one of the hardest things for us to ever surrender to Jesus. But when we do, we begin to see that we reflect Him in our everyday living, in our attitude. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's an attitude passage. You have the same attitude as Christ. You see others as better than yourself. You see others as more significant than you see yourself. And you treat them accordingly. And when you do, when you do, you are reflecting as in a mirror, Jesus Christ. You become part of the remodeled into a whole new beings with secondhand parts cobbled together from the family tree. You become what Kimball was talking about. You become part of the church, showing people who Jesus is. Well, back in 1 Timothy, after Paul gets through all of that type of teaching, he does something really interesting. He tells Timothy that he's going to have to be purposeful about these things. You have to be purposeful about godliness. It doesn't just happen accidentally. In chapter 4, verse 11, he says to Timothy, command and teach these things. As a young preacher, you command and teach these things, the mystery of godliness. Don't let that ever shift. Don't let that ever change. But listen to what he says in verse 15. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. He goes on in verse 16 to say, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Interesting teaching that a lot of us don't think about in Christ, that we are to practice certain things. We are to immerse ourselves in the things of God, and once we do, then we are to practice them, be purposeful about it. That to immerse ourselves in Christ means to get involved in studying the Word, in prayer, in church, and in service. But to practice things says that when there is something that is difficult in your faith, you put yourself right in the midst of it and you practice it over and over and over again until you get to a place where you're comfortable and competent in dealing with it. You practice these things. A lot of us don't ever think about the fact that we need to practice certain things in our walk with God to get good at it, but we do. Why that's surprising is beyond me. Think about all the ways that we practice things in our life to get good at what we want to do. We set goals and set our vision and our sights on it, and we work hard towards that. This morning, I'll, I'll just give you an illustration out of my own life. I'd always wanted to be a bow hunter growing up, and so I had purchased a bow and played around with it, but never got serious about it until Tina and I had moved to Colorado. And there I met a fellow named Basil Pearson, wonderful guy. He became my bow hunting partner. In fact, my hunting partner in every regard. And I enjoyed the time that I got to spend with Basil and still enjoy getting to talk with him at different times. Just a good, good friend. He really is. Well, I told Basil that I wanted to go bow hunting with him and Basil had been quite successful. In fact, he was the Colorado amateur champion in two different arenas, in 3D as well as in Vegas tournaments. So I knew I had a pretty good teacher. Basil said, Phil, I'll take you bow hunting, got no problem with that, but here's my only rule. You have to practice, and you have to practice a lot. 
Basil shot 150 arrows. Didn't matter what the weather was like or what was going on in his life. 150 arrows every day. Summer, winter, spring, fall, 150 arrows every day. And he said, if we're going to go hunting together, Phil, you're going to have to shoot a lot. So we did. We shot about three or four times a week. And I usually set my sights on shooting 50 arrows. Basil would shoot 50 with me. And then throughout the course of the rest of the day, he'd get 150 arrows in. Well, down in his trophy room, I got to see all these different things. The elk that he had killed with his bow, the deer, the antelope, all these things that he had killed. But the thing that was most impressive to me was a wad of robin hooded arrows that he had in his gun room banded together. Now, if you don't know what a robin hooded arrow is, it is arrow numbers one and two going through the exact same hole so that arrow number two goes into the shaft of arrow number one. That's a robin hooded arrow. It takes a great deal of discipline to get there, and you have to shoot a lot to actually do it. And by the way, it's one of the stupidest things ever because that's about 20 bucks that you just run. <clears throat> but I was really impressed by all these Robin Hooded arrows that Basil had, and I said, I want one of those. And Basil said, you're going to have to shoot and shoot and shoot to pull it off to get arrow number two into arrow number one. So I did. And I had this great teacher that was showing me all kinds of different things and teaching me all kinds of different things so that I could get to that point. And finally, I Robin Hooded an arrow. I was so excited. Tina was inside with Basil's wife, Gail, and she heard me screaming outside when I Robin Hooded that arrow. It's the only time I ever did it. That's it. It's one of my favorite trophies. In all of the hunting Basil and I did together, I shot four different mule deer with a bow, and we antelope hunted with bows. I was never fortunate enough to connect. But this is my favorite trophy because of what it represented. There was a lot of practice that went into it, a lot of discipline that went into it. I had set my sights on being able to do that, and I did. That's pretty cool. Why don't we do the same thing in our walk with Christ? Paul says, immerse yourself in the things of the Lord and then practice things. Practice the discipline so that you get better at what you're doing. So that you become who you want to be in Christ. A mirror reflection of Him. That's some of the great teaching that we find in these passages. And there's so much more. We have to practice the things that make us uncomfortable. Don't run from them practice them. And there are going to be things that will try to disrupt that. And that's the very reason that Paul would say this to Timothy. We're still in chapter 4. Verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Here's Phil's paraphrase of what Paul just said to Timothy. Don't you let anybody stop you. Don't you let anything stop you. Timothy was young. He was preaching in Ephesus. It would have been easy for people to say he didn't have enough years, didn't have enough experience. They didn't need to listen to him. So Paul said, don't you let anybody tell you you're too young. You do what you were called to do. You mirror godliness and you teach it. You command it. You instruct it. You dedicate yourself to it. Yeah, you're young, Timothy, but stand up and do what you're supposed to. Proud of the fact that we have some young men and women in this church that are setting an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, and in purity. They're doing what they're supposed to do. It doesn't matter how young they are. Well, there are other applications to this same idea. In today's world, it's not necessarily youth that we look down upon. It's people of advanced years that we tend to dismiss and, and not listen to. Well, Paul would say, don't you let anybody look down on you because you're advanced in years. You're not worthless in the kingdom of God. You continue to mirror godliness and you teach it. You be who you're supposed to be no matter how old you've gotten to be. There are other people that would say, my past prohibits me from being able to share the gospel. 
Paul would say, don't let anybody look down on you because of your past. It's your present in Christ that matters. Others would say, my sin is, is the thing that causes me to stumble all the time, and I can, I can never preach because of it. I can never share the gospel or witness to anybody because of it. Paul would say, don't you let anybody look down on you because of your past sins. They've been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. You look at your present and your future. If you let your background hold you back, you look at who you are in Christ, and you practice it. Immerse yourself in it and see what happens. Devote yourself to it, he says to Timothy. Devote yourself to it and see what happens. The end of the passage, he would say to Timothy, by doing all of this, you will save yourself and others. You will save yourself and others. And isn't that the greatest goal there is? What we have to realize is that godliness, in many ways, is an energy. Kind of a crass term for it, but it's an energy. But it is not a static, stained glass type of energy that just comes together from time to time on Sunday mornings and sings some songs and hears a sermon and then goes back out and does life. That's a static faith. Godliness is a kinetic energy. It is an active faith. James would say that once we hear something, we're supposed to do it. We're supposed to act on it. Paul says, don't let anything stop you from doing that. You act upon it. You do it. That's a kinetic faith that leads to godliness. Isaiah would develop that type of faith, and then he would make these sorts of declarations. Here, my Lord, send me. Use me. You put me out there, and I'll be faithful. Isn't that a great idea? That's what godliness says. Use me, Lord. I'm ready. I want to be used for you, for your kingdom, to accomplish eternal things, that I might be saved and others with me. That's what it's all about. That's really what it's all about. I hope you can embrace that. I hope you can accept that. And I hope you can begin to live that. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, it's an interesting thing that when we understand godliness and all that it entails, we can move out of the mystery of it into the application of it, that we might be declared godly ourselves. And I pray that we will. Pray, Lord, especially for those that have been in a relationship with you for a long time, but they've been somewhat static. Would you get them moving? That they might immerse themselves in you and begin to practice what they need to practice. Work at it, Lord, so that they can hit the mark over and over and over again and be used by your prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.